John was the only original disciple to live long and to die of natural causes. 100 plus years old, he was known as John the Aged. And yet historians say that John attracted crowds like a rock star. He was with Jesus during his earthly ministry. That's why folks would flock to hear what the wrinkled old preacher had to say. His followers would carry John in their arms into the arena while everyone inched up to the edge of their seat, eagerly waiting to hear a story about the Word made flesh. And yet John usually gave the same brief sermon. He would utter just six words, the same six words that he writes here in verse 7. He would say, Beloved, let us love one another. One of the early church fathers, a man named Jerome, in his commentary on Galatians, he tells that one day after John had delivered his brief single-sentence sermon, that a disciple asked him, Teacher, why do you always say this? To which John replied, It is the Lord's commandment, and if alone is kept, and if it alone is kept, it is sufficient. John saw love as the very heartbeat of his faith, as the anthem of Christianity. And thus the theme of 1 John is stated here in chapter 4, verse 7. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is of God. And everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. Most of us inherited a birthmark from our parents. Let's say a mom has jet black wavy hair. And her daughter has jet black wavy hair. Someone will say, there's no mistake in that girl's mother. Or a dad with a muscular frame has a son with a similar build. We say, he's his dad's spitting image. When a child shares a parent's distinguishable trait, most dominant trait, you can be confident they were born to that parent. And this is true spiritually. God's most distinguishable trait is love. All true love is of God. Thus, those who are born of God will love as God loves. In other words, love is the believer's birthmark. And certainly, the reverse is also true. For John writes, He who does not love does not know God, for God is love. Understand, when John says God is love, he's not reducing the concept of God to a mere emotion or force or feeling. No, the Bible reveals God as a person. God is a person capable of exhibiting a full range of emotions. Love, yes, but also anger and joy and grief and jealousy and patience. Yet God's dominant emotion, the trait that lies closest to the surface with God, is love. It's been said, love does not define God, but God defines love. What we know of true love, we learn from God. In fact, when you think it through, the truth that God is love necessitates the doctrine of the Trinity. You know, the Bible teaches that God is one God, yet this one God exists in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. But for love to exist, it has to have an object. So for the eternal God to have always been characterized by love, 
then there has always had to be someone for him to love. Before time began, before creation commenced, the members of the Godhead dwelt together in this beautiful, harmonious love for each other. And for reasons unknown to us, God now has amazingly focused his love on you and me. John says in verse 9, In this the love of God was manifested toward us. The word manifested means to put on display. When I think of this word, I like to think of the store displays that often sit on the end of the aisle at the grocery store that get your attention, that advertise a certain product. God has showcased his love. But where do we turn to see his love? Well, John tells us that God has sent his only begotten son into the world that we might live through him. God put his love on display. He showcased his love in a Bethlehem manger, in a carpenter's shop, in a humble village called Nazareth, on the shores of Lake Galilee, on dusty Jerusalem streets, in temple porticos, even on a hill of execution called Calvary. God's love for us and the life he offers us is on display in his son, Jesus. God's plan points to Jesus. God's empathy is seen in his son's coming as a human being. God's wisdom is revealed in Jesus' teachings. God's power is on display in Jesus' miracles. God's mercy and grace are made visible in his dying. And God's redemption was unveiled in his resurrection. Lost people hunger for life and hope should look to Jesus. For that is where God's love is on display. You know, it's sad that so often you hear people brag about their great love for God. You ever heard this? You ever heard somebody do that? The sacrifices that they make, the gift that they gave, the extremes to which they've gone. If that's you, just hush. Nobody wants to hear you brag about how much you love God. No, verse 10 tells us, in this is love... Not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. I like C.S. Lewis's observation. He wrote, on the whole, God's love for us is a much safer subject to think about than our love for him. Indeed, our love for God pales in comparison to his love for us. It's a drop from the eyedropper. His love is the vast sea. You know, it's been said, love always flows downward. And indeed it does. Love is like water. It flows downhill. A parent's love for his child is always stronger than that child's love for their parent. And who among us will ever love God with a thousandth of the love with which he has loved us? See, here is love. God loved us enough to send his son to die in our place. I love you guys. I love our church. But I don't love any one of you enough to sacrifice one of my three sons. Sorry. If it were you or one of my boys, I'd make sure you got a nice funeral service. <laughs> but I'm sorry. I could never sacrifice one of my three sons. 
And yet God sacrificed his only begotten son that he could show you and I mercy. Notice John says that Jesus is our propitiation. The word means to satisfy God's wrath towards sin. Did you know God hates sin? That God gets angry with our sin? For he realizes its destructive consequences. Thus, when Jesus paid sin's penalty, he satisfied God's wrath toward our sin. Now, instead of showing us judgment, he extends to us mercy. You know, our world is all about exacting vengeance and justice. Yet Jesus shows mercy. Jesus is a place of mercy. Years ago, I saw a clip shown on an episode of America's Funniest Home Videos. It illustrates God's mercy. It's a little grainy. I hope you'll be able to make it out. But it's mercy on display. I think you'll enjoy it. I love that visual. The brother has no issue crossing the crack in the sidewalk, but the little sis is stranded. So what does he do? He bridges the gap. She crosses via him. And this is the gospel. Our Lord Jesus bridged the gap, the massive gap caused by our sin, the gap between us and God. Jesus has satisfied the righteousness of God. He's extended now mercy to you and me. And he's now our way for us to cross over to God. And here's John's conclusion, verse 11. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. If we've been impacted by such a strong love, how can we not love others in the same way that we've been loved? I recall a common theme in the old science fiction films that we used to watch, a spaceship you know, get travels too close to a hostile planet and suddenly it can't escape from its gravitational pull. It gets sucked in. And this is what John says should happen to a Christian. When you get caught in the pull of God's love, you can't escape. You'll want to love others with that same love. John says, no one has seen God at any time. If we love one another, God abides in us, and his love has been perfected in us. God is spirit. He's invisible to the physical eye. Thus, the closest this world comes to actually seeing God is observing his love through you and me. We reveal God when we demonstrate his love to others. Once a Salvation Army worker, she met a bag lady on the street. She invited her to the chapel to receive help, but this lady ignored her invitation. That is until something unusual happened. This worker said that later, she later said that she had never done this before, but at that moment, she felt impressed to reach down and kiss this lady on the cheek. And when she planted that kiss on her cheek, the woman began to sob. That night, the bag lady got food and received Christ. Later, she said, 
You said God loved me, but when you showed me, that's when I wanted to get saved. How does the world see love? It's when we show it to them through God's love. And John says, by this we know that we abide in him and he in us because he has given us of his spirit. Remember Galatians 5 verse 22. The fruit of God's spirit is love. And God love, God's love comes to us in three ways. He has spoken it to us. He does it for us. And now he puts it in us. God's love is proclaimed in the Bible. It is proven on the cross of Jesus. And it is now perfected in our hearts. In fact, this Greek word in verse 12, translated perfected, it means completed. The love of God comes full circle. It's completed. God proclaimed it, then he proved it, and now ultimately it flows through us to begin afresh in others. It comes full circle. Verse 14, and we have seen and testify that the Father has sent the Son as Savior of the world. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him and he in God. The true God abides in the heart that embraces the truth about Jesus. And it's not just what Jesus does, but it's who he is that matters. Jesus is both the Savior of the world and the Son of God. And remember what this meant in the Hebrew mind. In Jewish thought, the son of a horse is a horse. The son of a man is a man. Thus, this phrase, son of God, meant that Jesus was God himself. He was every bit as much God as the Father God. See, John is just reiterating, you can't be wrong about Jesus and still be right about God. He says, and we have known and believed the love that God has for us. The love of God is not just speculation to John. He's not just hoping God loves him. He's certain that he does. And why is he so sure? Because Jesus stretched out his arms on the cross and said, I love you this much. We can be assured of God's love by trusting in Jesus. He says, God is love, and he who abides in love abides in God, in God in him. In other words, God loves to love, and he'll team up with anybody through whom he can love. He says in verse 17, love has been perfected among us in this, that we may have boldness in the day of judgment, because as he is, so are we in this world. Remember, Jesus was despised and rejected, unappreciated for who he is. And as he is, so are we in this world, loved by God, but hated by the world. And this is the predicament that every Christian will have to navigate at some point in their lives. Loved by God, but hated by the world. And yet one day, on Judgment Day, those who know God's love will be free from fear. For our sin has been judged by Jesus on the cross. Thus, in that day, in that day of judgment, we'll stand boldly, assured of God's forgiveness, confident in His love. For John says... There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear because fear involves torment, but he who fears has not been made perfect in love. 
fear. Boy, fear is a mountain. Some people can't climb over. It's one of our fiercest foes. There is the fear of failure, the fear of people, the fear of the unknown. What is it that causes you to back off, to shy away? What is it that strikes fear in your heart? It's the love of God that conquers all fear. For there is no fear of failure when I'm sure that God accepts me. There is no fear of people when I know that God's love protects me. There is no fear of the unknown when I'm confident that whatever comes, God's love will perfect me. Here's the truth. There is no fear in love. Perfect love casts out fear. Then he says in verse 19, we love him because he first loved us. See, the source of my love for God, your love for God, is God's love for us. I mean, would your child really love you if you didn't love your child? Probably not. And neither would you love God if he didn't first love you. Romans 2 verse 4 drives this home. Paul says, or do you despise the riches of his goodness, forbearance, and long-suffering, not knowing that it's the goodness of God that leads you to repentance? Boy, I grew up in a kind of religion that was designed to scare the hell out of you. Scare you into repentance. Hell, fire, and damnation. Throw in a little brimstone. That's what I grew up on. I mean, you'd come home from church and have to brush the ashes off your clothes just to sit down. And though this may have temporarily kept us in check, trust me, it did very little to capture our hearts. Boy, it was only when I discovered God's love for me that it drew me in, that it captured me. His love caused me to love him in return. And today, when I begin to sense my passion for God cooling, waning, you know what I do? I recall God's love for me. His love for me refuels my love for him. This is why Jude tells us, keep yourself in the love of God. The key to loving God is realizing his love for you. Verse 20 is the narrative that John is determined to maintain here in this text. He's been adamant throughout. If someone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen, how can he love God whom he has not seen? And this commandment we have from him, and here it is again, that he who loves God must love his brother also. This is the drum that John has continually pounded throughout this letter. In chapter 2, verses 9 and 10, chapter 3, verses 10 and 11, chapter 3, verse 16, chapter 3, verse 23, chapter 4, verse 7, chapter 4, verse 11 and 12. Now in chapter 4, verses 20 and 21, we know that we know God. The world knows that we know God if we love one another. That's 11 verses. That's over 10% of his letter that John repeats over and over again. You know that you know God. You've been born of God if you love your brother. Love is the pulse. It is the heartbeat that indicates a person is alive with the life of the Spirit of God. But lack this love 
harbor hatred in your heart toward others. And though you might say you love God, it's a lie. Without love, there is a disconnect. And here's the big characteristic of love. Love maintains the narrative. Love stays focused on the issue that is affecting the people it loves. Real love doesn't get distracted. It doesn't lose focus. You know, on October the 7th, when we awoke to the Hamas attack on Israel, we were concerned about the hostages. 237 innocents abused, violently seized, taken captive. But how easy has it been under life's daily grind in just a few weeks now to let the memory of those hostages fade? Surprisingly easy. As always in these tragedies, it's left not up to the public in general, but to the victims' families, to the people who love them individually to keep love alive. My point is, it's always love that maintains the narrative. In May 2020, we were all appalled to see a black man, George Floyd, handcuffed and on the ground. A white police officer's knee was on his neck as he kept saying he couldn't breathe. There was not a sane person in America who wasn't gripped by that video. But over the summer that followed, all across our country, protests and riots overshadowed the real issue. Stores were looted. Black, even black businesses were ransacked. Minority owners and police suffered in the mayhem. Folks rightly angered erupted in ways that did nothing but muddy the waters and distracted us from the real issue. What did any of the chaos really have to do with addressing the legitimate racial injustices that exist in America? I thought George Floyd's death would start a serious discussion in America about racism and racial injustice. Instead, as it, as it seems to me, it only invoked anger and retaliation and revenge. And now three years later, very little constructive work has been done. I think we got distracted. Got our eye off the ball. For it's love that keeps the narrative alive. Not hatred. Not rage. It's love that keeps us focused on what's really needed for betterment and for progress. So often we let the noises of this world muffle out the real issues. It's love that keeps our best interests at heart. Love always maintains the narrative. And then he says in chapter 5, whoever believes that Jesus is the Christ, the word Christ here means Messiah, it's God's anointed, the Savior in essence. Whoever believes that Jesus is the Christ is born of God, and everyone who loves him who begot also loves him who is begotten of him. The greatest kindness that you can do for me is to be nice to one of my kids. Give my son a job or lend a helping hand to my daughter. Do some babysitting for her. That's what she needs. And you've done me a solid. I appreciate it. And so it is with God. Jesus is the only begotten Son of God. Now, you and I are born of God spiritually, but Jesus is God's only 
physically begotten son. We're going to explore this in the Christmas season. But the Holy Spirit hovered over the virgin womb. A miracle occurred. God became a man. God begot a son. Thus, to love God is to love his son, Jesus. And you see, the opposite is true. Deny or defame God's only begotten son. And you reveal your hatred for God. This is what you realize when you go to Jerusalem and you stand there on the Temple Mount and you look up at the Dome of the Rock, the Muslim shrine that has been built there on the Temple Mount. Across the eve of that shrine are the words, they're written in Arabic, and they read, God does not beget and God is not begotten. That's what was written on their shrine. It's a direct denial of the passage we just read, 1 John chapter 5, in Jesus' unique birth. It reveals Islam's hatred for the Christian God. By this we know that we love the children of God when we love God and keep his commandments. Again, how do we know our salvation is legitimate? Do we love God and do we obey him? For this is the love of God that we keep his commandments and his commandments are not burdensome. I mean, we're the ones that make things difficult and complex. No, God's commandments aren't difficult. They're not complicated. They're not onerous. His commands are are for our good and for his glory. Remember what Jesus said in Matthew 11? He said, my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Love Jesus and you'll want to obey God. You'll look for ways to please him. Remember, we love him because he first loved us. Verse 4 says, for whatever is born of God overcomes the world. See, the world is pressuring us to conform and give in to sin. It's pressuring us from the outside in, but God plants his spirit on the inside of us. He counters the external temptations with an inner resistance. Thus, the key to overcoming is learning to live from the inside out. You've got to learn to draw on the inner resources that God's spirit has embedded in your spirit. See, the Christian life is like a helium balloon. Fill a balloon with helium and it rises despite the gravity that's pressing down to keep it down. The life of the Spirit gives us the same kind of buoyancy. It gives us a spiritual lift. The Spirit of God enables us to overcome hardships and rise above the temptations of this life. And this is the victory that has overcome the world. What's the key to living that kind of life? Our faith. It's faith. What's the key to living from inside out? It's faith. Our trust in Jesus is what activates his life and power in us. He says, who is he who overcomes the world? But he who believes that Jesus is the son of God. Again, faith in Jesus is what overcomes this world. The Greek word translated victory back in verse 4 is the word Nike. Interesting which was the name of the Greek goddess of victory. Apparently, she wore fancy sneakers with a swoosh logo on the sides. 
But don't follow her motto, just do it. For remember, the key to victory in the Christian life is not just do it, it's our faith, John says. We need to trust in the victory that Jesus has won. It's his faith that unlocks his power in our lives. Remember from our first two weeks in 1 John, this letter was written to address the dangerous heresy of Gnosticism. You see, the Gnostics were people who couldn't concede that the divine would ever take on human flesh. That certainly God would never subject himself to a cruel crucifixion. Thus, they had different theories that denied the humanity of Jesus. There were actually two types of Gnosticism. Both were named after the men who championed them. First was Docetic Gnosticism. It taught that Jesus was just a ghost. He was a phantom, that he had not really come in the flesh, that his body was only an illusion, an apparition. And they would tell stories of Jesus walking on the beach and leaving no footprints in the sand. The other branch of Gnosticism was Serinthian Gnosticism. It taught that the Spirit of Christ came upon the man Jesus at his baptism, but departed before he was crucified. Thus, God was never subjected to a crucifixion. But here in a single verse, Jesus blasts both camps out of the water. He says in verse 6, This is he who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ. Not only by water, but by water and blood. And it is the Spirit who bears witness, because the Spirit is truth. The water refers to Jesus' physical birth. Mary's water broke. Jesus was born of a human birth. He wasn't a phantom or a ghost. He was flesh and bone. And the blood refers to his death. The Savior of men, God's only Son, spilt literal blood upon the cross. He says, for there are three that bear witness in heaven, the Father, the Word, and the Holy Spirit, and these three are one. Now, if you're reading from a newer translation of the Bible, verse 7 might not be included. And let me tell you why. We no longer have the original writings of the New Testament. What we have today are ancient manuscripts copies of the originals. In fact, this is true of most ancient writings. And here's how you judge the reliability of a writing from antiquity. First, how many copies of that writing do you have? And second, how old are the copies that you possess? If you have a lot of copies and if they're very old, then you can assume that what you have today faithfully represents the originals. And what we have of the New Testament is truly amazing. For there are 5,800 Greek copies or Greek manuscripts of the New Testament, some dating back to the 2nd and 3rd centuries AD. And they're in 95% agreement. The few variations are only due to spelling or grammar, never doctrine. Which brings us to our problem here with verse 7. This verse is not in the oldest manuscripts. It's only in a couple of very late copies. And none of the early church fathers quoted it to defend the doctrine of the Trinity as they surely would have if it had been available to them. 
Thus, it is possible that verse 7 was added in the 14th or 15th century by an overzealous scribe and shouldn't be included here. If true, its inclusion is a mistake made by the King James translators, not John and surely not God. The original writings were inerrant. God saw to it that the biblical authors wrote exactly what he intended. This well-meaning scribe who included verse 7 may have done so to teach the nature of God taught elsewhere in the scripture. For it is true, the Father, the Word, and the Holy Spirit, and these three are one. And there are three that bear witness on earth, the Spirit, the water, and the blood. And these three agree as one. Jesus was born a man of water. The Holy Spirit came upon him in the form of a dove at his baptism. And Jesus remained both God and man on the cross. Thus all three witnesses, the Spirit, the water, and the blood, his baptism, his birth, and his death all agree on the nature of Jesus. Jesus was fully divine and he was fully human. He was 100 proof God and 100 proof man. Verse 9, if we receive the witness of men, the witness of God is greater. For this is the witness of God, which he has testified of his son. He who believes in the son of God has the witness in himself. He who does not believe God has made him a liar because he has not believed the testimony that God has given of his son. The spirit, the water, the blood testify of Jesus. This was God's objective stamp of approval on Jesus. But the fourth witness is a subjective testimony. The indwelling Holy Spirit. For every true believer has this inner subjective witness of Jesus. Christians have an inner assurance that Jesus is God. The Holy Spirit puts it in our hearts. A confidence. And then he says in verse 11, And this is the testimony that God has given us eternal life, and this life is in his Son. He who has the Son has life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have life. Now, I've seen men kick back by the lake with fishing pole in hand or tee off on the golf course on a stellar day, and they'll say to their friends, this is the life. But is it? Some folks are satisfied with so little. If participating in a temporary pleasure or a physical thrill causes you to say, this is the life, then you need to think again. If all life is to you is just scratching an itch, how sad. Real life is coming in contact by the God who created you. Real life is having the creator of the universe touch your life. Real life is brushing up against the eternal and knowing that your life will count forever. Real life is encountering Jesus Christ. As John says, he who has the Son has life. That's the life. These things I've written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life and that you may continue to believe 
in the name of the Son of God. Notice John's desire is not just for them to believe, but to continue to believe. He wants them to persevere in their faith. And John says God wants us to know that we have eternal life. Today, you can know that you have eternal life. You can pray a simple prayer. Take God at his word. Rest on his promises and ask him to come into your heart and do what he says he'll do. He'll forgive you of your sin, and you can walk out of here knowing that you have a home in heaven. Verse 14 tells us, Now this is the confidence that we have in him. And speaking of confidence, prayer is one of those areas in which God has given us great confidence. For if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us, whatever we ask, we know that we have the petitions that we have asked of him. Now, if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. The key to prayer is to make sure that your prayers get heard. But does God hear all of our prayers? And the answer to that is yes and no. Sure, God is omniscient. He sees all. He knows all. He hears all. But in a sense, God doesn't hear every prayer. And we should be glad. Here's a riddle for you. What do you get when you cross a termite with a praying mantis? What do you get when you cross a termite with a praying mantis? Answer, an insect that says grace before you eat your house. I'm just thinking you need a little help there. (laughs) Trust me, you hope God doesn't hear the prayer of that termite. See, there are prayers that I've prayed, and I am so glad now that God didn't answer. After I prayed it, I wish I could take it back. It was a stupid prayer, and I'm so glad God didn't hear it. If you have kids, you know exactly what I mean, especially if your kids like to whine a lot. Maybe it's just my kids that like to whine. But have you had any kids that like to whine? They'll ask for everything. And when they don't get it, they ask again. And when my kids started to whine, I always had a set response. I'd always put my hand on my ear and I'd say, I can't hear you. I would refuse to entertain their quibbling. And I'm glad that God takes the same approach with some of us adult whiners. God answers only the prayers that he really hears that make it past his ears and down into his heart. This is why when we pray according to God's will, we can pray confidently, knowing that our prayer will be answered. Then he says in verse 16, an interesting verse, if anyone sees his brother sinning a sin which does not lead to death, he will ask and he will give him life for those who commit sin not leading to death. There is a sin leading to death. I do not say that he should pray about that. All unrighteousness is sin, and there is sin not leading to death. Now, the Bible does have examples of sins that led directly to someone's death. In Leviticus 10, when the priests defiled the altar of God, God struck them dead. In number 16, when Korah, And his rebels defied God's authority, the authority of Moses. The ground opened up and swallowed the rebels. 
In 2 Samuel 6, when sinful hands touched God's holy ark, the guilty man died. And even in the New Testament, in Acts chapter 5, Ananias and Sapphira, you remember, they were struck dead when they pretended to be more spiritual than they really were and lied to God's spirit about the offering that they had given. See, the sin that leads to death is not always the same sin, and a person who commits it, the same sin, under a different set of circumstances may be spared. Face it, if every Christian, like Ananias and Sapphira, who played the hypocrite and claimed to be more spiritual than they really were, were struck dead, then we'd have a smaller crowd today than we actually have. Trust me. No, there are certain acts that in certain situations prove to be such a blight on the body of Christ that God does see fit to arrange an early exit for the perpetrator. John's point here is that if you see a brother's sin, pray for him. If it's a sin leading to death, you'll know soon enough. If it's not, then your prayer might just turn him around. And then he says in verse 18, We know that whoever is born of God does not sin, but he who has been born of God keeps himself, and the wicked one does not touch him. We know that we are of God, and the whole world lies under the sway of the wicked one. Now, I hope you don't believe that the devil lives in hell, (laughs) or that the devil hangs out in hell. Satan doesn't want to go to hell any more than you do. The book of Job teaches us that Satan is going to and fro on the earth and walking back and forth on it. Apparently, the whole world is his turf. As John puts it, the whole world lies under the sway of Satan. But there is one place that the devil and his demons can't intrude without God's specific approval. And that is the man or woman who has been born of God. Did you know that we are the untouchables? We are. Remember, Satan couldn't harm a single hair on Job's head until he had first received permission from God. And the same applies to you. Never forget, you have a father filter. Nothing can get to you that doesn't first pass through God and ends up with a purpose and a plan attached to it for your good and for his glory. And then we see in verse 20, and we know that the Son of God has come and has given us an understanding that we may know him who is true. Throughout the book now, John has dropped reasons why Jesus came into the world. Remember in chapter 3, verse 5, he came into the world to take away our sins. In chapter 3, verse 8, he came into the world to destroy the works of the devil. In chapter 4, verse 9, so that we might live through him. In chapter 4, verse 14, he came into the world to be the savior of the world. Now in chapter 5, verse 20, we're told that Jesus came into the world that we might know God. Jesus came to reveal to us the heart of God. God is revealed. Not only in his written word, the Bible, but in his living word, Jesus Christ. He says, and we are in him who is true, in his son, Jesus Christ. This is the true God in eternal life. Jesus was more than a mere man. He is the true God. Jesus alone has eternal life. Thus, we need to fall at his feet 
and worship him. You know, today's notion that it doesn't really matter what you believe in as long as you're sincere, as long as you believe in something, that's ludicrous. That's ridiculous. Our faith is only as good as its object. To say it doesn't matter what you believe as long as you're sincere is like telling your doctor that his diagnosis doesn't really matter as long as he's trying his best. Are you kidding? Not when it's my doctor and it's my prognosis. I want to know the truth. I want to know the true God. And his name is Jesus. Well, John ends his letter. Little children, keep yourselves from idols. Amen. And don't think idolatry was an ancient problem with no relevance to us moderns. Not hardly. No, today we are just as vulnerable to idolatry as the pagan with the little statue on his mantle. Anything you value in life more highly than Jesus, in essence, has become your idol. St. Augustine had a definition of idolatry that has been very helpful to me. He said, idolatry is worshiping anything that ought to be used or using anything that is meant to be worshiped. Worshiping anything that ought to be used or using anything that ought to be worshiped. Material possessions are tools to be used for God's glory. But when we forget that they're a means to an ends and treat them as an ends in and of themselves, we've made them an idol. Remember, keep yourselves from idols. Amen.